the escalation of gangs in New Zealand and the way they're changing. The most recent figures from the Police Gang Harm Insights Centre suggest there are 8,900 gang members in New Zealand. This compares with 10,700 frontline police officers. Nationals promising a crackdown on gangs if it forms the next government, including banning gang patches in public and giving police powers to stop gang members gathering in public. New Zealand Herald investigative reporter Jared Savage has for years now been exploring the country's growing underbelly of organised crime and violent gangs, with particular focus on the methamphetamine trade. His first best-selling book, Gangland, was about the evolution of gangs in New Zealand. His new one, Gangster's Paradise, just released, is all about their escalation, which he attributes in large part to Australia's policy of deporting so-called 501s. Jared Savage, good morning. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Good morning, Catherine. Can we start with the numbers, the total number of gang members as it's estimated in New Zealand, and how quickly it's grown? What's been the trajectory? Oh, if you go off the national gang list numbers, um, it's about an increase of 40% of the last sort of five or six years. Uh, there is a bit of conjecture around those numbers. Um, it's an intelligence product that the that the police use. It's not necessarily hard and fast. So, you know, people do treat those numbers with a little bit of a, a grain of salt, but it is very clear that um, putting aside the numbers, that there has been uh, an escalation in, in the growth of, of gangs uh, in numbers in the past five or six years. There's there's no doubt about that. It's easier to get your name on the list than to get your name off it. Shall we put it that way? That's That's right. That's right. What's behind the escalation? From your investigation, what are some of the key threats? I think one of the starting points is probably the introduction of the so-called 501s from from Australia. So this is when uh, 2014, 2015, Australia changed the Migration Act to be able to boot people out of the country on so-called character grounds. Um, And so... And many of your listeners would have, um, you know, seen stories about this over the years. But essentially, thousands of people with with no connection to New Zealand, really, other than the fact that they were born here, have been uh, deported from Australia to New Zealand, um, often without any um, sort of social network of support, no family, no job, um, etc. Now, among those five thousand or so people, there is a smaller subset of of seasoned. Uh, experienced veteran gang members from very influential clubs in Australia, motorcycle clubs, gangs, and they've come here and um, established their own chapters here in New Zealand. So immediately they have a foothold in in the country. They have vast uh, international networks, not just sort of Australia, but around around the world. And that's led to uh, essentially an elevation of of criminality in New Zealand. They've brought... um, you know, far more sophisticated methods of of uh, importing drugs, um, larger scale imports. We've seen that immediately. The the scale and size and regularity of huge drug imports coming into the country has increased. Um, but also, sort of a a bit of a they've they've got a bit of a swagger and an arrogance about them. And uh, in terms of uh, gangs for a long time in New Zealand from, you know, were often kind of not coexisting in peace, but everybody just kind of left each other alone. They had their little patch. But groups like the Comancheros, the Mongols have come in and um, certainly um, ruffled feathers by turning up in existing 
gang strongholds and saying, well, we're, we're moving in here and we're going to take over the drug trade and there's not much you can do about it. And that's led to escalation of, of, of firearms violence, essentially lots of drive-by shootings, um, arsons, firebombings, that, that sort of thing. And But in response to that, the established groups in New Zealand have also recruited heavily um, to bolster their numbers because they actually far outnumber the Australian groups uh, in terms of um, numerical size. And it's, it's just led to this, this escalation where they're kind of everyone sort of getting bigger, arming up, puffing out their chests because they don't want to be seen as the, the weaker, uh, weaker dog in the fight. What's extraordinary and revealed in your book is how the common sharers and the Mongols, uh, how they've grown from very small beginnings. You know, in each instance, I think a couple of guys. Uh, and, you know, let's talk about that recruiting again, the, the, the Nike bikey moniker that's applied to them and the way they market themselves. Yeah, so um, traditionally, and we're going to say 20 years ago, we're talking about um, a gang member might just be a, you know, someone who's looking a bit scruffy, riding around on a motorcycle, living outside of society's norms. This is very much um, sort of transformed in the last sort of five years into a more of a, a so-called Nike bikey, which is a, a term coined in Australia, where um, a lot of these guys are, are younger, good looking. They go to the gym, look after themselves, you know, beautiful girlfriends and, and um, flash clothing. Um, so it's a very attractive lifestyle to um, to young men uh, who have grown up with nothing. Um, so they come from um, backgrounds of, of poverty and hardship. And the, the this has also coincided with the boom in social media. So you've got these guys posting about their um, posting photographs of their amazing lifestyle on Instagram uh, and other uh, TikTok and other, and other social media apps, which has just created this incredible marketing campaign, viral marketing campaign. And it's it's attractive to people, this this gangster lifestyle. But I mean, with it comes, you know, a lot of hardship and, and violence and it's quite a scary world as well. But that's also been a big, a big driver in this um the, you know, the, the increase in numbers in the last five or six years. They've also collaborated on occasion. Many of them are friends from back in Oz. And again, it is striking how the kind of the, uh, the, the tree has sort of blossomed, if I can put it that way, from, from a very small number of individuals initially. But you mentioned uh, guns, and is that another issue? When we are seeing some of the, the, the things that are really raising people's fear about what's happening in this country, you can hear the phrasing, right? Things like the... The, the shots being fired inside a hotel on Auckland's waterfront, for example. Mm. Some of the drive-bys would be a case in point as well. People, you know, finding someone running into their house, um, as outlined in one instance, uh, although they yeah. were a neighbour. Um, this is, a lot of this is driven, again, by an increase in either the prevalence or the use of firearms. And can you explain more? So I guess it's fair to say that um, gang members and other organised criminal figures. It's not. It's not just gang members, but we've we've always New Zealand criminals have always had access to to firearms. Um, but I guess sort of ten twenty years ago, the the shootings were sort of it, it's much more for sort of um, protection or intimidation. So if you turn up to a drug deal or somebody owes you money, you can you can brandish a firearm and, and you're probably going to get uh, what you want out of that person. What's happened recently because of this, you know, this the greater numbers and the sort of the more sort of antagonism between the groups is that sort of people are now bringing um, bringing firearms to to a fist fight and it's spilling over into 
the public. So a lot of this stuff is normally under the radar. I mean, most most crime committed by by gang members or organised crime figures are sort of um, below the radar, if you will. You're not really any Joe Blow member of public isn't really at risk um, in terms of you know you're not really going to be stood over because you're not buying you're not buying drugs off these guys, right? But what's happened more because it's um, some of these rivalries that are sort of uh, and feuds are becoming um, uh, much more, instead of just getting beaten up, you're being shot at basically and, and your family's homes are being shot at. And we've seen that a lot recently in, the, in, in Auckland in particular, where you've had the killer bees and the tribesmen were at war about a year or so ago, um, tit for tat sort of shootings of houses. And the problem with that is that, of course, not everyone's aim is that good. Uh, or they're hitting the wrong house. They've got bad intelligence, so they're hitting the wrong houses. I mean, it's only a matter of time before um, somebody is killed uh, accidentally and, and basically being an innocent person caught caught in the crossfire. So I think we've always had guns. Um, they're being used more and more often um, for um, these sort of inter-gang personal feuds with increasing regularity. And I think there's also, just generally speaking, access to more powerful weapons than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, a lot of the military-style firearms that we often see in these gang raids have ended up in criminal hands in the last sort of five or ten years before before they've been banned in the introduction of the firearms registry. Do so we know? Do we a, know how? Is there is there a full on black market that operates? Absolutely. So, uh, for many years, there's been rumours around, uh, and then there's various pipelines coming in. So the obvious one is theft of firearms from um, you know registered licensed firearms holders. Um, so, you know, you might have five or ten guns in, in your gun safe. Somebody finds out and they, your gun safe is stolen and then those guns are, you know, sold to, to gang members or other criminals. Um, but one that's really popped out in the last couple of years is so called as retail diversion or, or straw buying. And this is where, um, under the previous, very previous law, um, a, a licensed firearm owner could Buy firearms from a from a gun shop, say Gun City, for example, they're the biggest retailer. Gun City would have to take their take their license details and um, write them all down, and, and there's a there's a record, right? However, uh, in a in a private sale, you, someone could just on sell those guns. All they had to say was, "Oh, they had cited the the firearms license of the new buyer," uh, and that was it. Um, so people were essentially acting as straw buyers or proxies. For criminal groups and we've seen a, this is sort of a trend that's only recently kind of been um uncovered and investigated properly by the police in the last couple of years and you know we've got there have been individuals that i've written about who've been buying 10 20 30 50 guns in, in a matter of a few months uh, and selling those into the criminal underworld so that's probably police now believe that's probably the biggest um biggest pipeline into into the criminal underworld and of course there's already a large pool available so as gun license sales laws have been tightened up um that will narrow that pipeline it becomes far riskier to 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 do that but there's already existing pool there which is enough to you know enough to feed criminals for quite some time what is the relevance here to the killing of the first police officer in 10 years in the line of duty constable matt hunt yeah, so Matt Hunt was a was a victim of of a um, a shooting uh, two years ago in in West Auckland, where the firearm which was used to shoot him um, was exactly one of these firearms that we're talking about here. So someone had purchased that firearm legitimately um, from a from an Auckland gun store, 
uh, and then in time that has actually moved ha- been passed along hands to the to the eventual killer Eli Epiha. And the police were never really able to work out exactly the chain between the legitimate purchase and then ending up in in sort of uh, murderous hands. But they did charge the person that had originally purchased it, um, and uh, you know they ended up getting a slap on the wrist actually by the judiciary. But that this is the, the, that's the tragic outcome of a a, a flaw that's existed in our um, framework for for decades until very recently. Let's talk about how the drug trade has changed by the, uh, by being changed by this, and it's interesting because part of what you outline early in the book is a more there's the connection with the international drug trade, which the um, sort of traditional gangs have developed as well. But early in the book, there was one particular individual uh, flies Hong Kong to uh, Auckland uh, a couple of times. Actually, this is the infamous. Um, um, what is it? Umbrella stand, <laughs> methamphetamine uh, import. Are we seeing? Are, are we seeing more direct importations to New Zealand? Sort of cutting out the middleman, by the way. And then let's talk a little bit more about how this uh, growth in the number of gangs, change in the nature of their relationships, is affecting the drug trade. But first, can you speak to that kind of direct importation? It's pretty insightful. This book into. How onto it customs actually is at the many and varied ways people will try and get meth in particular in here. Oh look, there are you know there are some very ingenious methods. Um, this particular one was probably one of the best I've seen, where where methamphetamine was mixed into a a concrete type substance uh, and then poured into um, umbrella stand bases. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, that's what they look like get through the country and then they'll be broken up and reconstituted in, into drugs. So it's quite it's quite genius, probably one of the best I've seen. And, and you're right, there has been a change in how drugs have sort of the business model um, of drugs getting into the country because I guess when methamphetamine first turned up sort of 20 years ago, um, it was very much a home-baked product here in New Zealand. So the um, various cooks, as they were called, learned how to cook methamphetamine um, from overseas um colleagues or peers if you will and so we were a lot of it was at clandestine labs um, where methamphetamine would be would be manufactured locally um, with um, at, at first it was pseudoephedrine which came out of um, cold and flu tablets um, bought over the counter in your local pharmacy and what's changed over the years of course pseudoephedrine got banned in our cold and flu tablets which is why we, we don't have effective medicines anymore but then that switched to um, groups importing pseudoephedrine in bulk, you know, hundreds of kilos at a time from China and then Southeast um, Asia once there was a crackdown in China. What's happened more recently is direct imports from from these groups because instead of local groups here sort of finding a supplier overseas and then, and then bringing it in, I guess the overseas companies, if you could call them that, have realised that they could directly import themselves, set up their own sort of structure in New Zealand um, become cutting out the middleman, as you say, become the wholesale um, seller directly to groups here, and then sending the profits immediately offshore. And I guess that's been a, a bit of a shift here uh, in the last sort of five years. It kind of indicates that, um, yeah, the, the big boys, the global international cartels in, in Mexico, South America, Southeast Asia, um, see New Zealand as a as a lucrative market because because it is. Um, a kilo of drugs sold and a kilo of methamphetamine sales in sort of Mexico or sort of um, 
Myanmar, Thailand for around about a thousand New Zealand dollars. Um, once it's here in New Zealand, it's worth anywhere between. Uh, it got down as low as eighty thousand, but anywhere between eighty thousand and one hundred eighty thousand dollars. So the profit margins are absolutely enormous. So let's look at the role of some of these newer gangs uh, in in the distribution. Then, um, and and we might bring in what police have done in response to this. Perhaps we should take the case study of Kowaro, which is. Again, quite an extraordinary insight into th- how things uh, can work. And um, uh, actually another th- strand of this book is that the police have had their fair share of successes uh, in what just ne- seems to be a, you know, a, a, a never-ending um, hither and thither kind of battle, right? But take the case of Kowaro, perhaps, and uh, again, just the dominance of one party there, um, one individual, one gang, and then how the police managed to uh, at least lop off that head, only to find out, I think someone said it was a hydro. I think you used that as a phrase for the whole trade here. But what happened in Kowaro? So Kowaro, um, this is called Operation Notice. This is the third chapter in the book. But basically, um, around about the time that we started seeing this influx of methamphetamine into the country, um, so we're talking about 2015, 2016, there was a, a, a constable in Kowaro, long, a long-serving constable there, who was essentially just um, fighting a losing battle against the local chapter of the Mungal mob there. Um, he was aware of many of the various offending that was going on, largely um, methamphetamine-driven, but of course that has flow-on effects to other other crimes like, you know, robberies and violence and, you know, and so forth. He was getting nowhere. There were not enough resources locally for him to to undertake one of these big investigations because they're very time consuming. You need you know electronic surveillance and, and you know a lot of resources, and so he couldn't get any help locally within the Bay of Plenty because everyone was so busy on other jobs. So he ended up writing directly to the then police commissioner Mike Bush, just outlining the problem. Uh, and I ended up getting those emails under the Official Information Act um, later on, but. And but what happened was is that eventually um, they were like, well, we need to basically parachute in a, a specialist team to, to to deal with this because locally locally the resources just aren't there. So they sent in the uh, a couple of teams from the National Organised Crime Group based in Auckland, and they conducted the investigation into the into the mongrel mobbers activities in Kowaro. And uh, what I mean, the actual. In terms of in terms of a scale of, of offending, it was actually relatively um, small. It was sort of kilos of methamphetamine as opposed to hundreds of kilos of methamphetamine. But the influence and the impact of uh, how, how much control the gang had of the methamphetamine trade in that town was mind-boggling. So I think of, of the population of about 6,000 people, um, at least 600, so 10%, were came up in the communications during the investigation as regular buyers of methamphetamine from the from the local mongrel mob. So that's ten percent of the town um addicted to addicted to meth and essentially in the thrall of the of the gang's leader. Um and it, you know, it was actually a pretty short investigation, about six months. Um and by that time they locked everybody up and they all they all the main players were convicted at trial um a few years later. But that created a window of opportunity for social services essentially to step in and help people um, with counselling, with rehabilitation. But of course, you know, it's a very short window of time and then somebody else moves in and, and sort of takes over the takes over the market. And I guess that's the 
that's the problem that we're dealing with here is that it's not just one not just one group dealing with it but but many and it comes down to the argument around well do we need to be tackling supply or do we need to be tackling demand or both and i, well, I want to just get to this point um because we, we've got some interest, I don't want to drag you into politics, but there are obviously some interesting policies being promoted at the moment. But that issue, the other thing that happened in Kauru, uh, I think it was the Kauru raid, was warning local iwi that this was about to happen. Um, and uh, certainly will tell you that relationship with that pl- the police, the trust of the police, the, um, the impact of sudden widespread raids uh, can be highly destructive to um, the citizenry, Right. So they were trusted, they kept that trust, the raids went ahead. But this question of whether police working with or or actually public money going into the likes of drug rehab, getting people out of gangs, often by former members, we've already said it's pretty hard to get your name off the list, is there evidence that it works? Is Is there evidence that it gets some people out of the gang lifestyle? I, I'm not aware of any empirical evidence to say so, but what I what I would say around um, uh, methamphetamine addiction and counselling is that it's best come if, coming from people who are QBE or, or qualified by experience. So, though if you're if you're struggling with addiction, uh, your entire lifestyle is is sort of dysfunctional. Uh, we'll put it put it that way. You're not necessarily going to listen to somebody. Um, from a clin- like a clinical background who who's never been addicted in their life don't know the struggles about it and so there is value in people who have lived that life and come out the other side and are looking to be more um uh, looking to contribute positively to society those are the people that can make the most difference i, I truly i truly believe that you are gonna have controversies such as um down the eastern eastern Maplin in Napier Hawks Bay a few years back around money put into a rehabilitation program uh, funded by, well, sort of working with members of the mongrel mob. I can see why that that led to a bit of, um, uh, you know, a bit of a, a saga or a scandal playing out publicly. You can only really tell by the fruits of what that program does. So in a couple of years, well, it's been going a couple of years, there'll be some evidence coming out at some point. They're going to have to be accountable for the money that they've received. Um that the proof will be in the pudding, right? So it's sort of too early to say. I, I, I'm, a, I'm always very sceptical. So I guess that's my starting point as a, as a journalist. But you've also got to give people a chance. And in my experience of these groups in Tauranga that are doing great work at a social welfare sort of level with families and of prisoners coming out, they form a meth cooks themselves, former gang members themselves, and I can see that they're doing good work. So. It's a real hard one. Yeah. Just uh, finally again, and not want to get sucked as a politics much again, but the talk about stopping gang members gathering in public and gang patches, just listening to you and reading the book, some of that almost sounds like we're fighting the sort of 1970s battles rather than, you know, these guys you're talking about, there's, there's a bunch of them who went off on a world tour. They had a bucket list world tour and they were Instagramming their travels. You know, they own right. batches uh, by, by each other's houses because they're tired of renting. Are they necessarily sort of standing around with patches on, intimidating people in the middle of a town, um, many of this new breed that you're talking about? And is that potentially kind of missing missing some of what's going on here? Or would it be an important part of the police 
Amory. Well, it depends on who you, who you talk to, but there there are gang members and there are gang members. So the, the sorts of groups that I'm talking that are the most um, influential in terms of organised crime, I don't think they're going to be too worried the fact that they can't wear their Comancheros patch on their bike cruising around. Um, they'll just wear their colours, right, which are black and gold. So you know they're still they're still going to be looking good in their Versace tops. What I would say around that, I think that particular policy is aimed more at sort of the lower the lower level gang members, the um the ones causing of overt problems in their in their towns and in the Kawados, in the White Oilers, um, in the Portuguese, where, you know, it, it, the Mongol mob and Black Power will be cruising around and um gathering in large numbers and wearing their patches. I, I think it's designed to, to sort of target those groups as opposed to you know, it's a, it's a wide ranging environment sure, sure. in the gang, right? Yeah, so that's it's targeting it's targeting the more overt ones that probably do make people more intimidated. Whether or not it works, I'm not sure. I've spoken to um, some police officers who think, well, it's actually going to make our job um, harder. It's going to be labour intensive, isn't it? If you're going to do it, yeah. Um, but there are others who say, no, this is this is this is a good thing because. If we if we ban patches in public, um, then we're taking away something that they hold dear to themselves, which is the the sense of identity of belonging to a gang, um, and so that will make it less attractive to join because that's one of the reasons um, why they do join. So, but like you say, labour intensive. If you're a if you're a cop out in the middle of a potiki and there's twenty gang members all hanging together wearing their patches, it's going to be difficult to um, to police that. You're going to have to go back. And get some get some backup basically and come back later on. So fascinating yeah. read, Jared. Thanks very much. Jared Savage, Gangsters Paralyzed Paradise, the latest book uh, by the long term journalist who has spent uh, many years investigating gangs in New Zealand.